Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and I am here with Deb. <laughs> We're having some technical difficulties already, so please bear with us. Um, where I am in the mountain, we just got almost a foot of snow, and there's snow in the trees, big, thick snow in the, the trees surrounding me, so the signal's not that great. And where Deb is, she's having issues as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just, uh, oh, dear. I don't, I can open some pages. But, of course, not the pages I need. This is very strange. But I am on a different uh, different server than I'm used to, so this is weird. Well, bear um, with us. And, yeah, uh, hopefully I can get these up. I don't see anything weird going on, but uh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, modern technology. It's freaking great. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you could do a lot with it, but it's very hinky, and it's depending on where you live. If you're not in in population areas like I'm not, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's very definitely hinky. Anyway, we will soldier on. Now, uh, this is a historical endeavor that Deb and I've been doing for three and a half years about well, the women in the revolution, and. We have found more and more women. We actually added loyalist women as well as patriot women to the mix. We also have been doing the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, which is what we did the last two shows. And tonight we're going to move on to another patriot. Now, most of this, the information that we get about these ladies is hit or miss. It's, some of them have a lot to tell about, and some of them are very, very sparse. But in those instances we actually just go around where the woman lived what was going happening there and then if we have to get into their husbands we will because you have to remember that everything that the husbands went through the women went through also isn't that right oh yeah yeah well you know it depends on also where they the wives were too um Damn it. Um, I'm trying to multitask here, and I can't really do that anymore. Uh, but it, the, the, the lives were connected. Uh, she was, I mean, whatever her husband did, you know, she was, oh, how do I explain this? Because of... Uh, okay, that, I, got, I got this, because I need you to, you know, just... Yeah, I got to those... get my pictures up here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Well, what, ha- what happens normally is whatever the husband's going through, she's going through. Also, when the husbands have to leave, the only people taking care of whatever um, store or house or 
plantation or farm has to still be managed, and that gets done by the women. The men are off either fighting in the war or on the Continental Congress or on ships. Um, so it's left to the women to take care of the household, and most, many times they have many, many children. I think the average is about nine children, and if you have one or two kids, that's very rare. That was how it was back in the day, um, which still to this day, there's a lot of people who are having kids. My husband's uh, grandmother had uh, 12 kids, and we're talking, you know, modern days. So they had to take care of the household. They had to take care of the farm. They had to take care of the kids. They had to take care of the servants. It was left up to them. And that's why even when we don't have that much information about these women, we can piece together a picture of what they were going through. Now, tonight, we are going to highlight uh, Rachel Walker Revere, who is the second wife of Paul Revere. And I'm going to start with the Women's History blog. And as always, we go through a couple of different uh, sites, get the information, and we piece together it all. So. Are you still having problems, or are you getting there? Oh, I'm still having problems. Okay. So which one do you have up? I have the history of American women, of course. All right, hold on. Let me see what that is. Oh. Oh, dear. I, Massachusetts. Why don't you try rebooting? I did that. No, it's my modem. God, I'm okay. pleased to be having a modem. Um, well, you start off on uh, on Rachel. I have to run out into the other room <laughs> and reboot the whole okay. system. So, okay. so. all right. You so, start, yes, you start on uh, you start on Rachel, and I'll be back in just a flash. Alrighty. Okay, so Rachel Walker, now I'm going to go to MassachusettsHistory.org. Rachel Walker Revere, born in Boston in 1745, was the daughter of Richard and Rachel Carsley Walker. According to Revere family lore, Paul and Rachel met on a Boston street soon after the death of his first wife, Sarah Orr Revere. Now I'm going to go back to the women's history blog because I'm going to tell you a little bit about. Um, Sarah. In August of 1757, because it ties Sarah and Rachel together. In August 1757, Revere married Aaron, Sarah Orr. Together they had six children who survived. In February 1770, Paul Revere moved his family from their Clark Wharf residence into a newly purchased home, which provided idea, ideal, which proved ideal for Revere's growing family and his mother, Deborah. On May 3rd, 1773, Sarah Orr Revere died. And that brings us back to Rachel. So the, Rachel's his second wife, and he's a widower with six kids, um, which is a, a big deal back in the day. A lot of time uh, when women were um, widowed, it was a little bit less than when men were widowed. Widow, believe it or not, because you know women obviously took care of the family anyway, um, and they even though the husbands were around, especially in this time that a lot of them weren't, they had the whole uh, full uh, 
obligation to take care of the kids. And that was what they did. They, they did that. So it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it's always a big deal when you lose somebody. I'm not trying to, to make it uh, seem like it was nothing. But with the wife, she already was taking care of the house. She was already taking care of the, the children, whereas the husband was taking care of the business. So when Rachel Walker married Paul Revere on October 10, 1773, she took on the care of the six children from his first marriage. Rachel gave birth to eight children, three of whom did not reach maturity. Large families and a high infant mortality rate were common during colonial times. So they had five and 11 children total, but she came into the marriage when he already had six. Um, Okay, with seven children, including a dying infant daughter at home, Paul clearly had a practical need to remarry. But in surviving scrapes of poetry and family tradition, scraps of poetry and family tradition, we find evidence of a love match as well, a bond that lasted through 41 years of marriage. Five months after the death of Sarah, Paul married Rachel in October 1773. By May 1775, she had a six-month-old son, Joshua, and six surviving stepchildren to care for, first at home and then as refugees in the New England countryside. So that kind of sets up where they are, but I have to get back and talk about uh, Paul as well. Now, did you get the site up for the timeline? I'm coming. Is it coming? It's coming. Okay. The reason that we, we did it, she found a wonderful site that has a timeline, and we've done the Northern Theater many, many, many times. But I thought it was important, and I'm glad she found it, to review exactly what the timeline um, was, because this is what they were going through, him and Rachel, right up to, like, as their marriage happened, a major occurrence happened in Boston as well, correct? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, they were meeting each other and the ki- getting the kids together, and all this chaos was just starting to break out in Boston. And even though they were in the countryside, they were still being very much affected. So did you get the timeline up? <laughs> You're not getting anything up. Just get, just, okay, now. Oh, oh, I have a title. Okay. <laughs> I just might have been able to pull this off. Hold on. Okay, okay. here we go. Yeah. All right. Now, this is uh, from Revolutionary War and Beyond.com website, and it's back uh, on Polly there. And we are going to, um, well, I'll just go down the whole thing here. Yeah, well, so go to, start from the beginning and go to 1773. Yeah. Okay, so he was born January 1st, 1735. And the north end of, uh, north end neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. Are you talking uh, about Paul Revere? Yes. I'm talking about the site that has the timeline of what happened in Boston. Okay, hold on. Oh, God, don't stop me. Jesus. I, you know, I don't know whether it's... <laughs> I don't know why this is. 
We just have no internet today at all. Okay, there we go. Okay. Oh, that came up. All right. So this is the uh, oh, oh, the Massachusetts Historical Society page website. And uh, I'm not sure what, what you're talking about. Which one are you talking about that I sent you? All right, hold on. Let me look in the in what you gave me. Um, it's from the Massachusetts Historical, and it's called The Coming of the American Revolution, Historical Society, and it has the topic okay. list, and it starts with the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Inferbi- a little bit snippet on every single one. Oh, okay. You just want me to read the snippets because I'm going to yeah, say there's the like yeah, so little the- articles. <laughs> oh. Yeah, just the <laughs> snippet. What you meant by timeline because, hmm. Okay, well, I'll just read the intro then on each. Um, The Sugar Act. The French and Indian War comes to an end in 1763. Now, Britain had defeated France in North America, but the victory came with a price. Parliament was left with a huge debt to pay, and the prime minister decided to share this burden with the colonies. And in 1764, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, setting off a debate on colonial rights and taxation. In fact, one of our uh, one of our Pennsylvania signers of the Declaration of Independence wrote a wonderful essay. I do believe I brought it up in the uh, the show on on his thought. You know, he he really went into does Parliament have a right to tax the the uh, colonies because they didn't have any representation in Parliament. There weren't anybody over there sitting in Parliament representing the colonies. And and he, it's a really fascinating essay if you're you know into learning more about the law behind the colonist uh, views. Okay, so then you know the Sugar Act, and then uh, came the Stamp Act. He said, despite protests from colonists who believe they should be able to tax themselves, Parliament passes the Stamp Act in March 1765. The act requires that official stamp paper be purchased and used for all legal documents, commercial paper transactions, and newspapers. And colonists responded swiftly and sometimes violently to the act prompting its repeal in 1766. And then there was the formation of the Sons of Liberty in response to the Stamp Act of 1765. Local groups calling themselves Sons of Liberty sprang up throughout the American colonies. These groups performed many functions ranging from organizing protests against the Stamp Act to keeping citizens in line. They continue to influence their communities long after the Stamp Act is repealed in 1766. So, you know, everybody thinks that the Revolutionary War started with the Tea Party. You know, or the the revolution started with the Tea Party. No, 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 no. Things had been going on 10 years before. And uh, it was all because of these acts that, you know, I mean, the Parliament, George II didn't want to be, you know, involved. He, He 
Parliament, you just take care of everything. I don't really want to get into that kingly duty thing. Well, George III was really different. He wanted to bring back uh, power to the monarchy um, and work with the Parliament. Basically, you know, that meant the Parliament doing what he wanted them to do. And uh, he was much more involved in the day-to-day stuff in, in the colonies. And the treasury was empty because England had been fighting wars for 100 years, if not more. And he needed money. Um, so he figured, well, we got colonies, let's tax them. And the parliament said, okay. And uh, they came up with all these acts. So it had been going on. You know, George III stepped in, even George II, you know, because he had to pay for wars. You know, that's the way it was. So anyways, uh, all the, the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act started riling up the colonists, and they finally formed the Sons of Liberty. And then came the Townsend Act. And after the failure of the Sugar and Stamp Act, Parliament is determined to prove its right to tax the American colonies. In 1767, it passed the Townsend Act. Colonists continue to argue against taxation without representation, even as troops are sent to protect custom employees in Boston in 1768. And uh, they did. They went in and they threw out the custom officers. They 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 made oh God, who was a custom officer? One of the one of the founding fathers was a custom officer. Was that Sam Adams? Was he a custom? I think he was a custom officer for a bit. But anyways, now. The Townsend Act continued, and the custom, the custom officers, some of them just, you know, left the custom office and said, this is it, I, you know, I, I'm out of here, you're threatening my life. And a lot of them just walked off the job. Others, you know, stood, stood strong. So um, the, uh, the colonies were economically going down the tube, for one thing. It, it The economy had already started to tank, and um, now in 67, uh, it's really in poor shape. And the passage of the Townsend Act, which levies duties on items, now this is amazing, it's glass, paint, and tea, and a whole slew of others, uh, right down to, I think, molasses. Um, I mean, it just covered, uh, oh, dozens of uh, of items. So it only made matters worse. And in response, many colonists refused to consume or purchase British goods while encouraging merchants to abandon sell, selling British imports. The movement falters, however, when the acts are partially repealed in 1770. And part of the reason they were repealed was not because of the colonists' outburst. It was the merchants in England especially London, that was uh, they, they were hurt by this because the colonists were boycotting. So they didn't, they weren't getting paid for what they had sent over, and they weren't getting asked to send any more. So you know, it was hurting their pocketbook too. So they they looked at uh, they went to Parliament and said, "Look, this isn't doing us any good." And you know, so Parliament turned around and went, "Okay, you know, it was all right, fine, we'll cut back on this," but. In 1770, after all this, and now, now um, King George has sent troops over 
because the colonists are getting restless. And there's British troops now in Boston and other places, but, you know, particularly Boston, because George, I mean, Sam Adams and Dr. Uh, Warren, what was his first name? Um, oh, God, I'm sorry, my, my brain just went blank on his first name. Warren, he, the one who, he was killed at Bunker Hill. Sam Adams and, and Dr. Warren and John Hancock were, and Paul Revere and, you know, others in the Boston area were making a lot of noise. They were printing broadsides. They were really getting out into the communities and, and uh, you know, saying this is all wrong and it shouldn't be and, you know, liberty and freedom to tax ourselves and, who the king's, you know, who does the king think he is? And so the loyalists were getting upset about that, but they were upset at King George too. But a lot of them were going, but you know, you're getting a little out of hand. John Adams was even, you know, quite uh, nervous about all that Sam Adams was doing, his cousin. Um, and of course, John Hancock was the richest man in Massachusetts um, at the time. And he was smuggling. <laughs> he was smuggling stuff in so he wouldn't have to pay the duties. And he kind of had a thing going with the uh, with the, the officials. Um, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, so there, you know, important people are starting to be noticed. King George gets a little upset about all this and decides that you know he he wants to quell this immediately. And the British troops come over which really upsets the people because they're living in their houses. And uh, then uh, comes the Boston Massacre in 1770 on March 5th. And, you know, there was a bunch of Bostonians out there with making noise. And, I mean, you have to say, the Sons of Liberty and others did set up some Hell, they burned down Governor Hutchinson's house. So, I mean, tensions were tensions. Hell, yeah, they were uh, they were pissed, and and they were out to make sure that the British knew that they weren't happy with them being there. And of course, it got out of hand, and and um, five let's see, five colonists were dead, and we're still not sure who you know who if somebody said fire or but yeah, I mean, but you know, John Adams came in and and did a you know totally American thing and defended the soldiers. You know, they deserved the trial. So that leads to the uh, formation. Well, it started the propaganda war that uh, went on after that. And Sam Adams and Paul Revere were very um, influential in that. And uh, it, it brought about the formation of the Committees of Correspondence. And Boston Committee of Correspondence played a crucial role in the growth of the Committee of Correspondence movement throughout the colonies, formed in 1772 to protest a new government policy concerning the payment of the Massachusetts governor and judges. Bostonians sought support in other towns and colonies. In March 1773, the Virginia House of Burgesses 
proposed that each colony appoint a committee for intercolonial correspondence, you know, seeing that they didn't have to telegraph at the time. This was a good way to, uh, you know, if, if someone would write a letter, send it on to the next committee, the next colony's committee, that committee would um, respond and send it on to the next colony. So this, you know, it's like... Um, a telephone tree, you know, one you call one person, that person calls another person. So that way that, you know, the information would uh, get to everybody. Now, here comes the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. And that was in the spring of 73. And let's see. Um, yeah, he married her in May of 73, didn't he? May? Paul Revere married her in May. Yes, so, yes he did. Yes, yeah. yeah, because in, in in the spring of 73, as he was getting married, Parliament passes the Tea Act, giving the East India Company a monopoly over the sale of tea in North America. Now, if you don't think, you know, you, you, you talk about K Street here um, with the lobbyists and, and corporations and whatnot, going after Congress to, you know, make nicey-nice for them, well, you should read about the history of of the of Parliament, Brit- British Parliament and the East India Company. <laughs> Some really, uh, you know, movers and shakers were involved. So, some patriots refuse to drink or buy the tea, while others take more drastic steps to prevent the sale of the pernicious weed, in quotes. Bostonians stage a rather dramatic protest in December 73 and debate over their action rages on into 74. So now we're into 74. So that was 73. I shall stop. Good. So now we kind of got kind of a background on um, where they're at. So I'm just going to go back to Paul Revere because. Um, well, you'll see why. <laughs> yeah. Born in Boston's North End in December 1734, Paul Revere was the son of Apollos Rivarier. Rivar. Rivar. Thank you, Rivar. A French Huguenot immigrant and Deborah Hitchborn, daughter of a local artisan family. They changed his name to Rebeer sometime after immigrating as a goldsmith and eventually the head of a large household. Now, this has happened throughout all of American history that we've had even, you know, people that came to Ellis Island, they changed their name um, to signify. Actually, I, I have read a couple of articles, and one is to signify that they were ready to get rid of their old identity and take on the identity of being an American. We don't have that here anymore. But some of it was because they couldn't spell their own last name. They couldn't, you know, translate it into the American language. It was a bunch of different reasons for doing it. But either way, they had no problems doing that. Now everybody wants us to change our names to whoever the hell comes in here now. Paul Revere was the second of at least nine, possibly as many as 12 children, and the eldest surviving son. Now, you're having problems with the Internet. so. Can you start to get up about um, the gold? Um, let me get my list. <laughs> Here, a list. 
um, gold and silver smithing in Boston or in the colonies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excuse me. Um, possibly as many as 12 children and the eldest surviving son. Paul was educated at the North Riding School and learned the art of gold and silversmithing from his father. When Paul was 19 and nearly finished with his apprenticeship, his father died, leaving Paul as the family's main source of income. Paul Revere was one of the finest American craftsmen of the late 18th century. Following his father's death in 1754 and military service during the French and Indian War, Revere took the family goldsmithing business. Now, Deb is going to explain what this is about because I thought that they would be doing this in Britain, not here. Okay. Um, I'm working on it. No, jeez. Let's see. Got it. All right, I'll just finish this little paragraph. Yeah, I finished that because uh, I... Within a few years, he had established one of the largest shops in Boston, where he crafted and repaired silver and gold items and engraved trade cards, book plates, billheads, illustrations for magazines, and other commercial work. Now, this is where the Stamp Act would have impacted um, him, uh, even though they, were, they ended up repealing it. But if it had happened... It, when he was starting to get his business, it would have devastated him and his family because they wouldn't be able to pay the tax. And that was his main source of money. So you see why everyone uh, reacted to it violently because it was every part of their, it's like they, they put a tax on the internet or they, we had to like, it had to raise it, you know, well, they do put taxes on the internet. What the heck am I talking about? <laughs> Look at your phone bill one day. You'll see all the taxes that are there. No luck? Okay, hold on. I'm waiting. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. The, the you, colonial era so, <laughs> silversmith, too many S's all at once, crafted the six pieces of silver into useful objects, including teapots, flatware, candlesticks, cups, and urns. Um, so they, they, uh, they, uh, between 1699 and 1780, about 16 silversmiths worked just in Williamsburg, popular thing um, because my god the society of of gold and goldsmiths and silversmiths in London is 700 years old the society so you know you have to realize that of course if you look at any any museum of ancient history you will see that uh, you know there were people working metals um, throughout history, and the gold, of course, gold, and then, you know, the Bronze Age, and then the Brass Age, every, I mean, the, let's see, there was the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, and then they, as they, you know, got through the Renaissance, it really took off, 
and uh, smithing of metals, you know, basically gold and silver became an, uh, a craftsman. And, um, and and if you read things, you'll you'll hear craft people termed as mechanics. That's what they called, you know, artisans and craft people. That, you know, they did a craft, like whether it was um, black iron or if it was um, silver or gold or wood. They they were known as mechanics. So the uh, the um, they would they would do a lot of the uh, silversmith work came out of Williamsburg because you know it was an older place. But Paul Revere basically grew up at you know his father's knee learning how to do this. So he he. Uh, Took right to it, and he was really good. If you've ever seen any Revere um, uh, items, you, you know teapots and or tea sets and uh, bowls, the Revere bowl is is very uh, very popular. <laughs> but I do believe I have one. I hope I do. I should have. Um. Mm-hmm. Anyway, most of the the silversmith work was involved in making small items such as buttons, shoes, buckles, and spoons. Um, so the you know the people, the, the well, what did they call them? The, the middling, you know, the, the merchants and the people that had more money than the poor people, but they had less money than the aristocracy. The middling is what they called them. So they could, you know, afford a little more, uh, you know, basic uh, items. Um, the wealthy, of course, would uh, go to the silversmith, goldsmith, and commission works. And uh, unfortunately, as the economy sank in the 60s, Paul Revere's silversmithing kind of took a dive, and he went into copper engraving and whatnot and other things. Well, what we ta- what we were talking about off air, you were explaining about silver and uh, how it was used. You know how extensively it was used. Oh, silver. Well, you know, um, there there was pewter, there was silver, there, and there was gold. But that was usually for the the creme de la creme and the royalty. And silver was expensive. Uh, Silver items were much more expensive than pewter, which is if you uh, hear the the term blue blood, you know, he's a he's a blue blood, uh, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. It's because back then the uh, the wealthy people who could afford silver would eat on silver. They would use silver utensils. They had bowls and cups and everything else. Um, and and apparently an, a large, you know, continuous intake of silver tinted their, their blood a little blue. It had a little blue blue cast to it. So, you know, when, when they were bled or, you know, they put leeches on them and they bled them and they saw the blood, they, they realized there was this blue tint to them. And that's how they got the term blue blood. If you had blue blood, then you were wealthy enough to eat off of silver. 
Yeah, you know, and I I just love that we find out all these little tidbits, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, back to Women's History Blog. Is there anything else you want to talk about that? No, no. Okay. That is. All right. Revere's Silver Shop was the cornerstone of his professional life for more than 40 years. As the master silversmith, Revere was responsible for both the workmanship and quality of the metal alloy used. He employed numerous apprentices and journeymen to produce pieces ranging from simple spoons to magnificent full tea sets. His work is regarded as one of the outstanding achievements in American decorative art. You nasty, horrible man. You horrible, free enterprise man. Employing numerous people, giving them jobs. I hate fog. Revere also supplemented his income with other work. During the economic depression before the revolution, as this is what Deb had pointed out too, Revere began his work as a copper plate engraver. He produced illustrations for books and magazines, business cards, political cartoons, book plates, a songbook, and bills of fare for taverns. Now, um, Deb, I'm surprised as... as um, hostilities were ramping up between the British and the colonists, that they didn't have this man under surveillance because he could easily be sending, uh, you know, messages to anybody because he was doing all the uh, engraving work. You know what I'm saying? I'm surprised he wasn't on their radar. He was. Not as much as, as not as much as Samuel Adams, John Adams, not as much as them. Well, no, because he, kept quiet. Sam Adams did not keep quiet. He was all over the place making noise. Um, But, you know, Paul Revere was kind of in the background doing stuff. Right. You know, he he kind of kept, but they they knew who, you know, the Sons of Liberty, they knew who they were. And you just had to keep one step ahead of them. And also the fact that the uh, Paul Revere had created his own spy ring called the Mechanic, and they were spying on the British soldiers to keep, you know, one step ahead of them and sending sending information on to, um, you know, Washington and and whoever else needed to know. He had you his know, own little spy ring. And you know, we're gonna I'm gonna be reading more on on more and what he was really um, involved in. And as I read this, I'm thinking to myself, this is really scary times for Rachel. I mean, she's got these kids she's got to take care of. They're in the midst of Boston, and her husband's running around with all these, with these other guys, the Sons of Liberty. I mean, you have to know that all of these women that we talk about supported their cause, whether it was a loyalist being loyal to British Crown or the Patriot women being, you know, Patriot. They really, really believed in their causes. There wasn't any of this, like, one moment they're going to be like this, another moment they're going to be like that. There was no wishy-washy back and forth. You had to take a stand. The only ones that were wishy-washy were the Quakers. Um, And you got to think that, well, once I read this, I wanted to set it up because I'm going to read this, and I'm thinking to myself, my God, this woman's going, what am I going to (laughs) do? Because by now, they're pretty well-known, and they, they're pretty wealthy. 
I mean, he's a famous silver and goldsmith and copper, uh, what do you call it? Whatever he was, copper thing. <laughs> so, I mean, they're not, they're not like poor, you know, homeless people. They have a lot to lose. All of our founding fathers and mothers had a lot to lose. Even on the loyalist side, they just really did. And the fact that people are running around talking how they're talking right now, it to me is ludicrous after doing this show for three hours because you have no clue what you have to lose. And as a matter of fact, you can protest and call the president anything you want. You can chop off his head. You can smear Melania, my wonderful first lady, who's keeping her mouth shut, as she should, just like Dolly Madison, because um, uh, Abigail Adams didn't keep her mouth shut. <laughs> Dolly was very much behind the scenes, um, and so is Melania. And nothing will happen to you, which is extraordinary to me, because anybody that threatens the first family, they should really be put in jail. And what would happen to you back here, you would be hung. And everything you had would be rounded up. I'm so sick of everybody whining. They have no clue. So anyway, Paul Revere was one of the key figures of the revolutionary movement in the New England colonies. When the revolutionary mood began growing in Boston, Revere became involved as an active member of Boston's Sons of Liberty chapter led by Samuel Adams. He also used proceeds from his business to finance revolutionary activities. Revere played a major role in popularizing resistance to the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre through his wildly circulated engravings. He helped plan and carry out the Boston Tea Party in 1775 when members of the Sons of Liberty climbed three ships anchored in Boston Harbor and dumped tea chests into the ocean to protest British taxation. Between 1773 and 1775, Paul Revere was employed by the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety as an express writer to carry news and copies of resolutions. He also played message, relayed messages through British troop movements from Boston to Philadelphia, New York, and Hartford. Now, this is what you were talking about. He was basically a courier before yes. his ride, right? Yes. He was a, a courier for the committee of correspondence, yes. And again, he's running around like this, and what? She's at home, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, what, the first couple of years of their marriage, of course, he was gone more than he was home. Yeah, and I actually have some excerpts about that that she um, – that she had uh, written, that, like they have a record of anyway. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to do a little bit more of this, and then I want you to go back to the timeline and finish it to the end. Okay. Okay. Between, let's see, in the year before the revolution, Revere gathered intelligence by watching the movements of British soldiers. Having learned of British General Thomas Gage's plans for a surprise midnight raid, the movement of the British on the night of April 15, 1775, aroused the suspicion of the patriots who had remained in Boston. The logical conclusion was that they were moving to capture John Hancock and Samuel Adams at Lexington or the military stores at Concord or both. Okay, so why don't we go do this timeline and explain what's happening right around here. But you did a really good job because I know that it was just a little snippet, but you really got into it, and, and I was really appreciative of that. 
Okay. In the spring of 74, the Parliament passes the uh, course of act in response to the destruction of the East India Tea Cargo, the Boston Tea Party, and there were other tea parties also. It wasn't just uh, Boston that did this. Massachusetts and Boston are singled out and punished, but the acts do not produce the desired effect. Throughout 74 and 75, and into 75, the other North American colonies question the wisdom of Parliament's actions. And uh, let's see, um, it goes into it a little more here. Um, Parliament decides that chastising the residents of Boston, Massachusetts seems the obvious step towards pacifying all the colonies. Um, and then they, they do the intolerable act um, to quell the commotions and insurrections taking place in Boston. And this is when they were really starting. To, I mean, George III goes, look, I want this stopped one way or another. You know, um, uh, the, the the three coercive acts that affect Boston and, and Massachusetts most directly were um, the uh, close the port of Boston on June seventy in the seventeen seventy four. Two additional intolerable acts, the Administration of Justice Act and the Massachusetts Government Act take effect in the summer of 1774. These three acts, together with the Quebec Act and the Quartering Act, are known collectively as the Coercive Act. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, serving as a colonial agent in London, he was there the, the 10 years that he was there, satirizes these ministerial policies with a special creation of his own, which he calls an act to enforce obedience in the American colonies, which is basically what our government is trying to do to us right now. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what we're going through. I mean, the more I read about this, it's just, you know, things don't change. Um, so anyway, the Boston Committee of Correspondence worked furiously to remind all colonists that they suffer in the common cause. And the committee formulates a plan of resistance known as the Solemn League and Covenant. The Covenant calls upon all colonists to boycott British uh, British goods. So, yeah, they're really ramping up now. Um, and they're... they're uh, uh, really, I mean, these are these are terrible acts that were passed. I mean, it was like if you were if you were caught doing something illegal or treasonous, you were to be brought back to England to have a trial. You wouldn't even have a jury of your peers in your colony. You would be brought to to Britain and. Um, and, you know, that's just, that, that was just ridiculous. And then there was no no uh, local government governing anymore. They, the uh, royal governors were told to get rid of all the, the, the uh, colonies. Legislative uh, um, assembly, you know, the, the, like the Virginia House of the Burgesses and the, and the, the Congress in Massachusetts, uh, they were abolished. 
So there was even no no self-governing within the colonies anymore. Well, this didn't go down very well. So in response, patriots organized a colony-wide Congress to discuss the United Course of Resistance. And the first Continental Congress meets in September and October in 74. Colonists continued to debate the course of action prescribed by Congress throughout fall and the winter of 75. Now, in the fall of 74, General Thomas Gage, who is now the governor of Massachusetts because Hutchinson's house was burned and he was threatened and, I mean, they burned and there were people in the house. They started to set it on fire, the mob of the uh, Boston residents who weren't too happy with all this stuff. And so he just decided he'd had enough and the king decided that he couldn't control the mob. So he sent over a military guy, General Thomas Gage, as the royal governor of Massachusetts. And he brought a whole bunch of British troops with him and he sent them out on scouting missions into the countryside surrounding Boston. And one such mission sparked a violent confrontation on in April 1975, where both uh, British and American propagandists hastened to explain their side of the story in the months that follow. Um, and it was all, you know, Gage saw that New England was just on fire. I mean, it, it was getting out of hand. A lot of mobs, a lot of uh, 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 loyalists being harassed and loyalists harassing patriots and, and royal officials being threatened and um, and the militia. The militia came in really into its own and um, they uh, they showed up. You know, they, they put out the alarm and they showed up um, eventually after this because Gage wanted to immobilize the uh, the Patriots' um, ammunition stockpiling. He just wanted to go in and get. He'd heard that there was you know stockpiles of powder and and uh, ball, musket balls and things, and he was he was going to send his little troops in to get them so that the Patriots couldn't have them. Um, and uh, but the, but it, this leads into um, this leads into, you know, the, the Lexington and Concord battle, which gave forth the Second Continental Congress um, in the spring of 75, the, uh, the body convened once again. War has broken out in Massachusetts, and the colonies must now consider the question of independence. Their debates lead to decisive action in the spring of 76. Now, while that was going on, the Battle of Bunker Hill had happened. Um, you know, the Lexington and Concord on April 19th, and then in June, American troops fortified Breeze Hill and nearby Charleston. The two forces clash on, on June 17th, and, um, they, they, you know, it, we, we lost a lot, the British lost a lot, and it was, it was, it, it 
it really was um, a bloody battle. And uh, that's when Dr. Warren, and I really wish I could remember this person, John, John Warren? Oh, God, I feel bad. But, you know, I, I have the file of missing details somewhere. I would like to find it. But anyways, um, Bunker Hill was really the turning point. Now, the second, um, the second Continental Congress were there, and they go, okay, so Lexington conquered Bunker Hill. The British are here. War has begun. And God love it. Israel Putnam and um, another old war horse. He had been in the French and Indian War and a few other. Uh, well, he, you know, they fought with the British, of course. Uh, they were in the British Army. And they, they tried to do their best at Bunker Hill, but they didn't really have a whole command. And all of a sudden they had, you know, thousands of men who had come from all sorts of, you know, different colonies to send on Boston, and there was no one there to whip them into shape. I mean, a lot of them had never, you know, been in an army before or anything like that. Um, there was the young people that had missed the French and Indian War. There hadn't been a war since then, so... You have all these fresh faces that have never fought in a battle, and they don't know, you know, and they come with their their uh, hunting rifles, which may or may not be very good, and a lot of them showed up without any rifles. And so the Second Continental Congress goes, "Oh, hey, we got to do something here," and they, of course, uh, pointed at uh, well, John Adams uh, nominated, <laughs> proposed at George Washington. And he became the commander of the army. He went up to Massachusetts and went, "Oh my God! I mean, here's this Virginia aristocrat coming up to, and, and you got to you got to think of Boston Common, you know, the green, the middle of Boston, um, out on this peninsula because it was a peninsula at the time. There's just this screwy little neck that attached to the mainland. All of a sudden, there's thousands of men in the middle of Boston." Um, and they're just, you know, crashing the place, and it smelled, and it was horrible, and nobody had dug any latrines, and I guess. So Washington came in and went, dear God in heaven, and got to work. So they had the beginnings of an army. Um, and then in 76, of course, uh, the Second Continental Congress meets in Philadelphia in the spring of summer of 76, and they debate the question of American independence while also waging war with Great Britain. And, of course, we all know that July 2nd, they went, uh, here it is, and on July 4th, they went, yeah, and by August, what was it, 28th, they had all signed um, the Declaration of Independence but the, the, the Congress had agreed on it on July 4th. They had voted on it and made it so. So there there you are up to 76, and then, of course, um, well, we could go on, but it would take hours. Anyways, that was the, 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 the what really set up the American Revolution and um, how, you know, our founders, as we call them now, but the men 
who uh, and and their families who put their lives and their honor and their fortune uh, in the news. And a lot of them lost hope, all three. So uh, there you have it. Now, that is the coming of the American Revolution, 64 to 76. Yeah, it was a, a neat little find that you had there. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, good website, and it goes into much more detail. I just skimmed over. Um, and it gives the Massachusetts Historical Society has has this. Uh, you just go to uh, masshist.org, and you'll find it. So back to Paul Revere and Rachel. And the year before the revolution, he gathered intelligence. We went through that. And it aroused the suspicion of the patriots who have remained in Boston. The logical conclusion was that they were moving to capture John Hancock and Samuel Adams at Lexington or the military stores at Concord or both. King George had put a price upon the heads of these two patriot leaders who were attending the daily sessions of the Provincial Congress at Concord but they lodged nightly in the neighboring town of Lexington at the house of Reverend Jonas Clark, whose wife was Hancock's niece. Now, again, to me, and I know you're going to have to explain it also, it seems really, well, like, but uh, I don't know. I don't understand why they didn't really go after Paul Revere. (laughs) I know you're saying that uh, Samuel Adams was, you know, vocal. John Hancock wasn't as vocal as Samuel, was he? John Hancock was known as a smuggler. He was on the radar. Um, Yeah. And Sam Adams, of course, made sure that everybody knew, you know, he didn't care. Um, In fact, I mean, he he was one of the first. In reading a biography of of him, he was thinking we should have, uh, the, the colony should be independent of Britain back in the late 1750s. So, you know, he was really um, ahead of his time. And it's like when I tell people, you know, everybody gets so frustrated uh, with, you know, the way things are today and how, you know, the Constitution is just being shredded and nobody seems to care. Um and, and I, you know, but we're waking up and, and we're studying and we're learning. And, and I would always say, but look, Sam Adams started this in 1758. You know, look at how long he had to wait for him, for the country to be independent. So it just takes time. You know, you can't do it in a week. It's not a sitcom on TV that's going to be wrapped up in half an hour. We have a lot to undo. Um but anyway, yeah, but see, the, problem, the problem thing is, the problem with this is that we already have the tools to fix this. We didn't have right. the tools back then. It's, no, they didn't. They had to start from scratch, so it shouldn't take quite as long because we have the Constitution. It's, it's uh, I mean, Trump was, is a good start. That was an excellent start. Now, you know, we get in and we keep shoving, and, and that's what Sam Adams did. He He got in there, and he, he just kept getting in their faces and, and going, look, this, and, and if you have to read some of the, the his writings 
and, and, and read um, Hancock's writings and read, you really have to read these, these men's thoughts and realize that it wasn't like they were talking about anything new. It was just that the Enlightenment had allowed men to voice thoughts, you know, that they didn't think were possible before. And, I mean, they've been talking about liberty. You can go back to Cicero, you know, 3,000 years ago or more. I'm not sure when he lived. Um, might be even more than that. I never can remember if he was in 3,000, or it was 3,000 years ago that he lived. <laughs> Anyways, BC this is. But men have been talking about governing and liberty and human rights as long as there's been humans to have rights. And a lot of them didn't get a right. And, and finally, in 1776, a bunch of men got together and went, look, this is what it's all about. You know, let's try this experiment, they called it, because no one had done it before. And we're going to throw it out. We're going to just let, you know, a whole bunch of people who are Bolsheviks at heart come in and throw out our Constitution. Are you kidding me? Oh, anyways, I'm off my soapbox now. Well, that's what we always say on this show. I mean, it's not just also history. We do comparisons between what we had gone through in the founding of this uh, great nation and what's going on right now, because unfortunately it's relevant uh, and it's getting into a fever pitch, what, like what's happening in the timeline you just said around in Boston. It's getting to that point. Um, but again, ladies and gentlemen, we have the tools to fix this. We do not have to have a bloody revolution. All right. Let's see. Where was I? Okay. So they're over at Lexington, um, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Now, John Adams is still in Boston at this time because I don't think he went to the, the Continental Congress yet. So... And the, all of these men are in the same circle. They all swim in the same ocean. Um, so everybody, all their families know them. They're trying to keep correspondence. I'm um, sure that Rachel was really distressed when she found out that uh, they were going to capture um, Hancock, try to capture Hancock and Adams, because and probably in her mind, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, her husband was next. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he was on the list, I mean, when, especially when they found out that he had spies, you know, because they were spying on all the, the Sons of Liberty, and, and they knew about the committee and correspondence by now, so, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, and I think the, the thing that the British thought about at the time, and I'm sure it's written somewhere in books, was that if they get the big big wig instigators, it would quell the other players. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. That was the whole thing was um, if we could get the – because, you know, they knew that Sam Adams was – he was really the, the leader. You know, they really wanted him. And, of course, John Hancock, uh, they wanted him just – you know, he was giving them money. And – smuggling and they didn't like that and uh you know it was just they want if they wanted the colonies we have to remember now 
and this is where you, you get into British history, and you have to realize that the class system was for real. And if you weren't of the aristocracy or if you weren't a blue blood, you were, you were less than. And God forbid you let, you came from the colonies, as the loyalists found out when they went back to England during and after the war, they were treated like second-class citizens. And so this is the attitude that they were up against. I mean, these people, you talk entitled, you know? I mean, you, you, you talk to the, the, the regular red coat grunt, and he's just, you know, he might have to be in the army because he did something wrong or he was shanghai you know, if he's a sailor, he might have been shanghai somewhere off a boat, you know, off a ship, pirate ship, you know, smuggle, smuggling ship or in the ship of a, a, I mean, they took Americans off American ships and and put them on British ships and made them part of the Navy. They made them become British sailors. They kidnapped them. So this is what you're dealing with. I mean, this was the British Empire. This, I mean, nobody was better than the Brits, you know. And King George III, um, wanted to make England even more powerful um, than it had been. So, you know, this is the attitude of these people. Well, you know, the other thing, another consideration, and I'm sure, and we've, I think we've read a couple of uh, pieces from Parliament that was kind of on our side, you know, like back off, because wars cost money. And while mm-hmm. while they were fighting amongst each other or, you know, um, they're not getting any goods from us. And they're spending money to supply the, the, the soldiers and, the, you know, the war effort. So what started, which is really always ironic to me that I always say, what started out for supposedly us paying for another war, they ended up paying for another war, the British yeah. people. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's the thing. And and that happened in England. The taxes, of course, went up in England. And, of course, the economy went down. I mean, the whole reason Britain had the colonies here was for resources. I mean, you know, England was pretty well used up by this time when you figure that you know, people had been populating Britain, um, in this, yeah, I mean, population-wise, it's an island. And, yeah, they took over Wales and they took over Scotland and they, they put their boot on Ireland. But still, their resources were kind of, you know, limited. So they go, oh, we got this whole continent over here and we just want it from the French. So, yeah, it was really important for them to to have the colonies, and when stuff stopped coming back to England from the colonies, the, the merchants and, and the people in England were getting a little fed up. You have to look at both sides. I mean, that's why I, I read Britain history. I mean, that's 
well, since, you know, I'm from England and Wales, my history, but um, still, to understand more the mindset of the American colonial, uh, you know, you kind of have to know the history of the mother country. Right. And again, it just, it is really ironic, uh, Alanis, that they were trying to get money to pay for a war and they ended up getting into another war. I'm going to say that over and over again because they really didn't think this through. No, they didn't. Well, they didn't think that, I mean, they were so arrogant. Right. They thought sending engage and sending in more British troops and quartering them in people's houses in Boston would scare them. And, and all the colonists would come to heel in all the colonies. Because uh, they didn't understand Americans. In fact, some of the generals that were over here had been here for quite a while, you know, the French and Indian War, and uh, they had forts um, up and down the colonies. And I mean, it's not like they hadn't been here, but a lot of the people in Parliament and the courts you know, the royal court had never set foot on American soil, and they had no idea what American colonists were like. Yep. They totally underestimated us. Okay, so um, at 10 p.m. on the night of April 18, 1775, Paul Revere received instructions from Dr. Joseph Warren to ride to Lexington to warn Hancock and Adams that British troops were marching to arrest them. After being rowed across, rowed across the Charles River to Charleston by two associates, Paul Revere borrowed Florida horse from his friend, Deacon John Larkin. Now, this is one of the most famous rides, but there was over 250 during the course of the war, and a couple of them were done by, by young girls. And a couple were done by older women. We've already we've highlighted all of that. It, he was not the only one, not in a long shot. There were at least over 250 similar rides. While in Charleston, he verified that the local Sons of Liberty Committee had seen his prearranged signals. Two lanterns had been hung briefly in the bell tower of Christ Church in Boston, indicating that troops would approach by sea across the Charles River to Cambridge, rather than marching by land out Boston Neck. Revere had arranged for these signals the previous weekend because he was afraid that he might be prevented from leaving Boston. On the way to Lexington, Revere warned the countryside, stopping at each house and arrived in Lexington about midnight. As he approached the Hancock Clark House, where Samuel Adams and John Hancock were staying, a sentry asked that he not make so much noise. Noise, cried Revere. You'll have noise enough long before long. The regulars are coming out. He roused Hancock and Adams from sleep, and they, the two fled to safety. After delivering his message, Revere was joined by a second rider, William Dawes, who had been sent on the same errand by a different route. Deciding on their own to continue on to Concord, Massachusetts, where weapons and supplies were hidden, Revere and Dawn were joined by a third writer, Samuel, Dr. Samuel Prescott. Soon after, all three were arrested by a British patrol. Prescott escaped almost immediately, and Dawn soon after. Revere was held for some time and then released. Left without a horse, Revere returned to Lexington in time to witness part of the battle on the Lexington Green. Um, let's see. 
I'm not going to get into all that. Now, could you put up this Woman History blog um, site, or do you already have it up? I believe I have it up. Huh? History blog. Yes, I have it. Okay. Because I'm going to go back into um, one of the master, one of the Massachusetts historic because this talks about what Rachel was doing during this time. And then we're going to talk about Rachel's letters. Now, the other thing that, oh, because you're having problems with the Internet, so I don't think I'm going to have you do anything else. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is from Women History uh, blog. And, and it says it in this letter, and it just shows a picture of the letter, but we actually have letters from Rachel to um, Paul, and um, Deb will be reading those momentarily. But the, the letter that this article, this essay is quoting is a picture of a letter. In this letter dated Boston, May 2nd, 1775, Rachel Walker Revere informs her husband, Paul, of the difficulties that she faced in leaving Boston, then under siege by the American Revolutionary Forces, that surrounded Boston after the battles of Concord and Lexington. Until the previous day, she had not heard directly from her husband since the eve of his famous ride. The outbreak of fighting had left her with six stepchildren, aged 5 to 17, and a new baby of her own behind British lines. Now, that's a lot of responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, isn't it? I can't, again, I, I am so revered. I, I just revere these women so much because of what they've gone through. Her previous attempt to contact her husband had, and forward money to him had been intercepted by the British and would be found 150 years later among the papers of the British military commander in Boston and last royal governor of the Massachusetts, Thomas Gage. Few events in American history are as well known and celebrated as Paul Revere's ride on the night of April 18 to 19, 1775, to spread the alarm that a British Army expedition was on its way out of Boston to capture Patriot leaders and supplies. But Revere was not a solitary hero. When he set out from Boston, he left behind his business, property, and most important, seven children in the care of his formidable young wife, Rachel Walker Revere. The absence of her husband on out-of-doors work for the revolutionary cause was nothing new for Rachel Revere. During the 18 months of their marriage, she already had seen Paul embark on nine separate trips on behalf of the Patriot leadership in Boston to places as far away as New York and Philadelphia, as well on local trips to Portsmouth and Exeter, New Hampshire, and on two very recent trips prior to the battle to Concord and Lexington. The Revere family papers held by the Massachusetts Historical Society contain only a small number of documents by or about Rachel Revere, so we know relatively little about her life, the life of an ordinary woman in 18th century Boston, compared to that of her celebrated husband. I've got to stop right here, and I want Deb's input. She is not an ordinary woman. Well, she would have called herself such. Well, I'm not calling her an ordinary woman because she had to put up with her husband doing all this stuff. Well, yeah. Well, ordinary women women became extraordinary um, through this time period. It, it's amazing how many women. When when you read like some of the journals that we have found, when you read pre-war or you know 
they, 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 they talk about teas and dresses and, and housekeeping things and da-dee-da-dee-da, you know. So, but it, so many people came over to visit yesterday. So-and-so came, so-and-so. And then suddenly, you know, things are getting a little hectic. We hear that. And then they start talking about boycotting. And, and, and now they're sewing shirts. Now they're going door-to-door to, door to get money. And now they're riding 200 miles to make sure that a, you know, General Washington gets the message. Um, it's it just, it, and then they're standing, they, they put on men's clothing and stand in front of a bridge so that the British soldiers can't get through to, to, to arrest their father. Uh, or, I mean, it, they wouldn't call themselves extraordinary. They really wouldn't, and that's the wonderful thing about them. Because they were just going about their business and then, you know, the, the the colonies lit up and they were at war and they started doing things that were extraordinary, which makes them extraordinary women. Exactly. And it, even though before that then, she had to help him run his very, you know, expensive business. I mean, he was he was up-and-coming businessman. I mean, they had a successful one. And even when the like they, they say the economic uh, uh, depression happened before the Revolutionary War, he found something else to do. So I mean, she had to help him with that as well. I you know I just it's my pet peeve that we don't realize that how important women have been in this country forever. Mhm. Okay. Um, in this letter, we get a brief glimpse of her character at a moment of crisis in their lives. It shows her to have been engaged by the momentous events taking place around her, but anxious to be of practical help to her husband. Torn by the necessity of offering bribes to the servant of a British officer she clearly detested to secure her family's safety, and by the necessity of leaving her 15-year-old stepson, Paul, behind the British lines in Boston, she concerned herself with settling family business affairs and supplying her husband with money and clothing. The Captain Irving that Rachel Revere rails against in her letter probably was remarkably named Paulus Amarellus Irving, then a young officer in the 47th Regiment who often served as a field officer of the day during the Siege of Boston. Irving soon would be promoted to the rank of major, but in 1777 he was captured at the Battle of Saratoga and spent several years in American captivity. If he was Rachel Revere's nemesis, perhaps he received some of the same sort of treatment as a prisoner that caused her complaint. After the revolution, he went on to gain a knighthood and become a general in the British Army. So that kind of shows you um, what she was going through. <laughs> um, uh, she Now, I have a little bit more about um, uh, Boston. No, you know what? I'm going to have you read this because this is part of her letters, and it does explain where they're reunited. Okay? Um, okay. The marriage of Paul and Rachel? Now, you got, go back to Woman History Blog. Oh, okay. Go all the way down to you reach Rachel Revere's letter. Yes. Okay. And then stop at the image. 
going to have an image of a statue and then stop there because then I can, I'm going to go on from that. I don't have an image. Why don't I have an image? Oh, down, way down. Okay. Yeah, way down. Okay. All right. I thought it was after the first letter. And I was thinking, I don't have an image. Okay. Let's see. Let me get back to... Yeah, and you can read the, the whole re- you can read the whole rest of it. Yeah. Okay. Concerned that her husband would be stranded away from home with no means of feeding himself or the horse, Rachel Revere said prayers and 125 pounds in British currency in a wax sealed letter, entrusting it to Dr. Benjamin Church <coughs> for delivery to her husband. Church was a member of the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts and the Surgeon General of George Washington's troops and seemed able to easily pass through enemy lines. Unfortunately, it was a spy for the British, but I think we get into that later. And Rachel wrote in this letter, My dear, by Dr. Church, I send a 125 pounds and beg you will take the best care of yourself and not attempt coming into this town again. And if I have an opportunity of coming or sending out anything or any of the children, I shall do it. Pray keep up your spirits and trust yourself and us in the hands of a good God who will take care of us. Tis all my dependence, for vain is the help of man. Adieu, my love, from your affectionate, oh, revere. The rebellious spirit among the colonists was by no means unanimous. Many leading citizens viewed the extremes to which Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty were going with very dubious forebodings. By this class, Adams and his fellows were regarded as political agitators. In their loyalty to the king, the Tories believed it was true patriotism to report the activities of the patriots to British authorities. One of these, Dr. Benjamin Church, was so bold in his public alliances with the rebels that he escaped detection for a long time. He was well known, a member of the Provincial Congress from Boston and also physician general to the army pretending to have an active interest in the plans for resisting British regression, he became a member of the Sons of Liberty and was in the habit of attending the caucuses at the Green Dragon Tavern. Unfortunately for Rachel, instead of conveying her letter to her husband, Dr. Church handed it over to British General Thomas Gage. History gives no mention of Rachel's cash, but it is presumed that either Gage or Church cast 125 pounds. And that was no small sum at that time. Immediately after the Battle of Lexington, Revere decided to take up residence for a time in Charlestown, conceiving that this would be a more congenial place of abode than Boston, where it had become quite uncomfortable for persons known to be in sympathy with the Patriots. So Revere told his wife to pack up the household goods and leave his shop in the custody of a friend. And he writes, My dear girl, I received your favor yesterday. I am glad you have got yourself ready. If you find that you cannot easily get a pass for the boat, I would have you get a pass for yourself and children and effects. <coughs> Excuse me. Send the most valuable first. I mean that you should send beds enough for yourself and children, my chest, your trunk with books, clothes, etc., to the ferry. Tell the ferryman they are mine. I will provide a house here where to put them, and we'll be here to receive them. After beds are come over, come with the children except Paul. Pray order him by all means to keep at home that he may help bring the things to the ferry. Tell him not to come till I send for him. You must hire somebody to help you. You may get Brother Thomas. Let Isaac Clemens, if he has if he is of mine, 
take care of the shop and maintain himself there. He may or do as he has a mind. Put sugar in a raisin cask or some such thing in such necessities as we shall want. Tell Betty, my mother, Mrs. Metcalf, if they think to stay, as we talked at first, tell them I will supply them with all the cash and other things in my power. But if they think to come away, I will do all in my power to provide for them, perhaps before this week is out. There will be liberty for boats to go to Natami, and then we can take them all. If you send the things to the ferry, send enough to fill a cart, them that are the most wanted. Give Mrs. Metcalf, and the letter is torn at this place, in. They're part of the money. I don't remember the sums, but perhaps they can. I want some linen and stockings very much. Tell Paul I expect he'll behave himself well and attend to my business and not be out of the way. My kind of seems like Paul uh, kind of went hither and yon. <laughs> Stay at home, Paul. My kind love to your parents and our children, brothers and sisters, and all friends. And Boston was immediately occupied by the British Army, and most supporters of independence were evacuated. Rachel held the family and business together when the British wouldn't allow Paul to return to Boston after his famous ride. Rachel Revere and her children eventually joined Paul across the river at Watertown, and the family remained there until they were able to return to their home after the British evacuated Boston on March 1776. Okay, and now I just... Awful. Hold on. I I know. I have a question for you. Now, she left her 15-year-old son at the house? Because that's what I read before. Yeah, Paul Jr., um, her stepson. 15 was a man back then. Oh, you know, you're right. He'd been working with his dad probably since he was 10. You know, if he he was... um, yeah, you know, he was the oldest, and uh, so I imagine he was already in the Smith shop with his dad, right. um, and he knew the the going on, the business, um, and he could take up a musket and he could he could defend. I mean, fifteen hell, they were there were twelve, thirteen, fourteen year olds in the army. That, I know I keep forgetting about that because I'm, I put it in contrast of what a 15-year-old is like today. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't do that because these, you know, these, um, what we call teenagers today, they did not call them teenagers. Uh, they had no idea what a teenager was. As soon as you could, you did, you know. And, and um, the reason that they didn't get married um, as young as a lot of people think they did was because you didn't get married until you could take care of your family. You had better be set up, which is why, you know, there were um, oopsies, you know, and, and they had to get married because they got carried away, but she got pregnant. But no, um, they didn't, and he wouldn't even consider asking a woman to be his wife until he could provide for her and the children to come. And have well, a you know, and, and along that vein, I can I can actually see this now that you put this in perspective. This young man saying, "Oh no, mother, I am staying divine to guard our place, our business, and your things." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it would have been you know his his one thought. No, I'm the oldest father. I'm your oldest son. 
and I will take care of things. You go take care of the family. You know, in, in context of this, you know, it breaks my heart to think of them doing that, but I also, uh, it, it brings tears to my eyes to think of the beautiful, brave men and women heart who in their hearts and minds are doing that for us right now on the front lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. They're, but they're, right they're young, too. They're not old, a lot of them. They're young. No, no, they're 18. Unless they lied, they're really 17. And so many did in World War II and Korea and others. Yep. Okay, so continue. Okay, so, all right. Um, I can't remember if I read this. Rachel Revere and her family, or her children, eventually joined Paul across the river at Watertown, and the yep. family remained here until they were able to return home after the British evacuated um, in March 17th. 76. Uh, Revere's exploits in the colony service had attracted wide attention and were even chronicled in the London newspapers. One of the first acts of the Second Continental Congress, which met in Philadelphia May 10, 1775. See, they knew about him. You know, this was only 75, was to authorize the issue of a sum not exceeding $2 million of Spanish milled dollars in bills of credit for the defense of America. John Adams and Benjamin Franklin were members of the committee appointed to superintend the printing, and they gave the job to Paul Revere, who engraved the plate and printed the bills on such thick paper that the British called it the pasteboard currency of the rebels. The war erupted, and Revere went on to serve as lieutenant colonel in the Massachusetts State Artillery and commander of Castle Island in Boston Harbor. Revere and his troops saw little action at this post, but they did participate in minor expeditions to Newport, Rhode Island and Worcester, Mass. Okay, I'm down to the image. Yeah, I, there's more there. I didn't, I, yeah, don't do that image thing, but there's a lot more, and there's more letters, too. Yeah, okay. You can continue. I can continue. Colonel Revere and his son accompanied the expedition to Rhode Island in July 1778, and I bet you that was Paul, Jr., to reinforce General Sullivan. I can't imagine Paul Jr. not not uh, joining up, you know. The month of August was passed there in what proved to be an unimportant campaign, and the Massachusetts troops were back in their old quarters by 7 September 9th. We get a glimpse of the affectionate relationship of Revere and his wife in a letter which was written during this absence. And he writes, My dear girl, I love that, my dear girl. <laughs> Your very agreeable letter came safe to hand which I have wrote, but received no answer. I believe you are better. What a pleasure to hear. Pray take care of yourself and my little ones. I hope ere this to have been in Newport. My next hope I will be dated there. We have had the most severe northeast storm I ever knew, but thank heaven, after 48 hours it is over. I am in high health and spirits, and so is our army. The enemy dare not show their head. We have had about 50 who have deserted to us, Hessians and others. That means 50 of the Brits, the British Army, came over to the uh, rebels. They say many more will desert and only wait for opportunity. I am told by the inhabitants that before we came on, they burned six of their frigates. They have destroyed many houses between them and us. I hope we shall make them pay for all. The French fleet are not returned, but I just heard they were off Point Judith with three frigates. 
surprises this, I am told, comes from headquarters. I do not assert it for fact, but hope it is true. You have heard this island is the Garden of America. Indeed, it used to be so, but those British savages have so abused and destroyed the trest, the greatest part of which was fruit trees, that it does not look like the same island. Some of the inhabitants who left it hardly know where to find their homes. Colonel Kraft is obliged to act under Colonel Crane, which is a severe mortification to him. I have but little to do with him having a separate command. It is very irksome to be separated from her whom I so tenderly love and from my little land. But, <coughs> excuse me again, but were I at home, I should want to be here. It seems as if half Boston was here. I hope the affair will soon be settled. I think it will not be long first. I trust that all wise beings who has protected me will still protect me and send me safely to the arms of her whom it is my greatest happiness to call my own. Paul as well. Yep, there it is. Send duty and love to all. I am surprised Captain Merritt has not wrote me. My duty to my aunts, my love to brothers and sisters, my most affectionate love to my children. It would be a pleasure to have a line from uh, Debbie Lawson. <coughs> uh, from Debbie. Okay, Debbie. Lawson desires to be remembered to you. They weren't great on uh, on uh, punctuation in these letters. And spelling correctly. So do, do bear with me. My best regards to Mrs. Bennett, Mr. Burt, Captain Pulling, and all inquiring friends. Colonel Maristol, uh, who is one of General Sullivan's ad camp, tells me this minute that the French have took a transport with British grenadiers, but cannot tech, tell the particulars. Your own Paul Revere. Oh, sure, leave your letter right there, you know. That's what I thought when I first read this. It's like, okay, whoa, just, just leave it at that. I, it's done. It's over. I, You know, no more to tell. Revere <laughs> Canada is business and training. <laughs> oh, dear. Revere expanded his business interest in the years following the revolution and he imported goods from England and ran a small hardware store until 89. By 88, he had opened a foundry which supplied both spikes and nails for North End shipyards, produced cannons, and cast bells. One of his largest bells still rings in Boston's King's Chapel. Concerned that the United States, and um, this goes into his uh, his having a, the, the first copper rolling mill. He was the one who who figured out how to perfect copper rolling into sheets. And he provided the copper seating for the hull of the USS Constitution in the dome of the new Massachusetts State House in 1803. And it also, you know, became Revereware. He'd turn over in his grave if he had seen what Revereware has come to. Anyway. Uh, well, you know, not, o- not only that, uh, Sam Adams would turn over his grave because that's the only way anybody knows him. I know, and he never really made beer. it to the beer business. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, but when you finish this, I have to tell you, one of the uh, Waters World, and we'll get into a couple of different things on uh, that happened over the weekend as well. Um, but the uh, Waters World did a man on the street, and I do want to bring this up on the radio show to, to show how far we're – disassociated from anything that has to do with the United States of America. I mean, they could probably tell you capitals of France before they can tell you the capital of the United States of America. 
Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. Keep going. Okay. Uh, by the 1790s, Paul Revere had turned over most of the day-to-day operations of the shop to his eldest son, Paul Jr., in 1811. At the age of 76, Paul Revere retired and left his well-established copper business in the hands of his sons and grandsons. Revere seems to have remained healthy in his final years despite the personal sorrow caused by the death of his wife and son, Paul, in 1813. Wait a minute. Oh, in 1811, he retired. So I was going to say, um, that didn't make sense to me for a minute. Rachel Walker Revere died June 26, 1813, and... Paul Revere died of natural causes on May 10th, 1818, at the age of 83, leaving five children, several grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Um, the son of an immigrant artisan not born to wealth or inheritance, Revere died a modestly well-to-do businessman, a Midland, and a popular local figure. An obituary in the Boston Intelligence commented, seldom has the tomb closed upon the life so honorable and useful. And he was buried in Boston's Granary Burying Ground next to his second wife, Rachel, with whom he had four surviving children. And uh, basically, he was, you know, a relatively obscure figure in American history until Paul Revere's Ride, written in 1860 and published in 1861 in the Atlantic Monthly, which was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which had absolutely nothing to do with reality, but it was a fun poem. We all had to learn it. Um, let's see. Oh, and it goes on about uh, his house. And we don't really have to get into that. Um, right. Still, but it, it's still there in Boston. And uh, and his North End neighborhood, you can walk right down to it. Really interesting. Well, and it's funny, too, because you're when we... The, what, what they said that he was, you know, not that famous as everybody else, but we just made him, more, him and Rachel more famous because they really had a lot to do with the Revolutionary War. And if it wasn't for them, a lot of what we what was experienced would be lost. Yes, yes, and and see, and that's what you know. Every time I read about someone, and it's just a paragraph. There's a woman who did something, but it's just a paragraph. They don't know where she was born, when she was born, what her young life was like, her growing up years. They don't know when she died. It's just that she she somehow came out into the light for a few minutes and then went back into obscurity. And if, if they didn't have journals that were, you know, still around um, or the letters, you know, so many just your your ordinary citizen woman. Uh, I mean, they didn't, a lot of uh, what they went through, I mean, we can only imagine, or, you know, by reading the diaries, like some of the women that were in Boston at the time that did write diaries, but, you know, they most of the, the you know, the women that wrote diaries and whatnot were, um, they were well to do, you know. They weren't out on the farms or anything. They they had city houses and they had city lives. 
uh, they do people. Um, but the, the the regular, you know, the midland and and below people. Yeah, they're, oh, I just wish there were letters. What was your day like? You know, how are you feeling today? Did you? What did you think today? I know it's kind of boring, but I always wanted to be a time traveler. <laughs> There's so many shows about that nowadays. It just blows my mind. Okay, I so I think we did, we got her letter. Yeah, I think we did it all. Yeah. Now, the one thing I wanted to bring up is because we're talking about their punctuation and how um, wonderful they write. And we're always told that, you know, that you've, written, you've read a couple of essays that were written by college students nowadays that were atrocious. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you figure these people um, learned how to read and write uh, as well as they could for only getting a few years of schooling. I'm talking about the regular people, not the the aristocracy who could send their kids out to, you know, didn't have to have them working on the farm or in the shop. Um, and the mothers tried to teach them as well they could if they knew how to read and write, if they had been taught. So a lot of it was rudimentary, and and a lot of it was the fact that there wasn't a standardized grammar book yet. I mean, you you if you could read the Bible. But there was a lot, at that time, there was a lot of D and thou and doft and beget and, you know, it, it was a different language. Um, it was King James language. King James was, what was he, 1500? So, you know, a, things change over 200 years. Look at us now. We talk in 140 characters. It's not all I know. I know, and the funny thing is that, um, like I said, the um, Waters World, he did a um, man on the street, and he asked questions of people, and he was doing, he's in New York, and he's doing it on New York Street, that um, legal immigrants that come to this country and are made U.S. citizens after they go through all the hoops that they're supposed to because it's a privilege to be a, a citizen of the, these United States, not a... Not a um, it's a privilege. It's not a, a uh, right. Uh, he so he read off some of the questions that they have to uh, answer yeah. when they take the citizenship test. And then he got a little bit funky because, you know, th- these people were just clueless. He literally asked people in New York City, what land, what body of water is on the east end of the United States of America. He asked three separate people that that question, and they all said the Pacific Ocean. Oh, dear God. I am not kidding you. And did they say it with a question mark at the end? No. (sighs) No. Um, And he asked who Susan B. Anthony was, 
and they said, the, uh, oh, she's a rap singer. <laughs> yes, you would have loved that. What else did they ask? Um, I'm trying to think. Cause I'm one of the, the couple of things. I mean, everything that, that he asked, they got completely wrong. I know they were outrageous questions. They, the people that are walking around this United States of America has, do not have a clue about anything of our history at all. They don't even know what continent they're on. Yeah. Mm. And the, I, when, when we do this show, our founding mothers and fathers went through horrific, horrific circumstances to make sure that this country was made the way it is. And then you hear these citizens, which they shouldn't even be citizens if they don't even know what's the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, walking around and voting. Yeah. The other thing yeah, I want to... Go ahead. I love the, the, the ones who um, say that, yes, they're going to vote, and they have voted, and they believe in voting, and then they ask them who the vice president is, and they don't know. Oh, they didn't know who the vice president was. Yeah. They asked that. They had no idea. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I want to bring up in this context is our thoughts and prayers go out again to the four people in Texas who were massacred this weekend. And I want to bring up this going, going back not going down the rabbit hole. What you and I had discussed this this show was that the British underestimated us. They thought that if they they captured the key, key people, that we would back down, and we didn't. And that's why they didn't think they would we would go into war. And that's why I said they didn't think it out because then they ended up paying for another war. But mm-hmm. they had no clue at all who we were. And that is the same thing with the people that are talking about gun control and taking our unalienable right for preservation, self-defense away from us. These people really do not know who their fellow citizens are, as shown by the, federal, the, the fellow citizens that stopped this madman. That's the reason for the Second Amendment. That's the reason that Paul Revere did that dangerous ride. That's the reason why Rachel kept going on with the kids and left her son behind, right? That's the reason. So that we would be free, we could defend ourselves, we could defend our neighbors, we could defend our family. Yeah, because that the first thing the Brits did when they came into Boston was they took everybody's guns. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what they're trying to do to us. And if it wasn't for us fighting for what our forefathers and foremothers fought for and trying desperately to hold on to what we have, more people would have died that day. That's what this is all about, ladies and gentlemen. You, are you people out there that want gun control and want to control us, you underestimate the rest of the population of these United States. We are not the city people. We are not the lemmings uh, that the progs are. And there's a lot more of us. And there's a lot of us that believe in the Constitution, believe in having our rights. And we're not crazy. 
you have anything else to say on that? Because I'm going to get to my spiel. Okay. Um, yeah, the, I've been watching. I was watching C-SPAN today, and they were having uh, the Ways and Means Committee talking about the tax code, and the, the, you know, the reforms and whatnot that they're they're wanting to put through. And the, whenever they're talking about taxes, these Congress critters, the, the thing that stands out to me the most is the fact that they are allowing us to keep more of our money. Think about that. They're allowing us and and patting themselves on the back as they do this. They're allowing us to be able to keep more of our money that we earn with our hands. No one else's. And don't, if you own a business, you build it up yourself. And they're allowing us to keep more of them, our money. That is just, they don't realize that when they talk about taxes, they think it's theirs. They don't see it as our money. It's theirs. Why should we keep it? Now think about that over the week. I mean, <laughs> right, so Venus. we, they, the progs have decided that they're going to weaponize language. And I'm going to be saying this every radio show. So I have decided that we are going to weaponize knowledge in defense and offense. Defense comes when we defend our history, our constitution, and our freedom. We have to defend them. They're under attack constantly. The offense is truth. The only way that you're going to know truth is if you know your history and can articulate it, whether they're going to listen. There's just some people who are not going to listen. You're not going to throw pearls among, among swine, so you just walk away. But it's important that you talk to your neighbors, your family, your kids, your coworkers about these uh, issues because that is the only way we're going to win this is if we defend our Constitution, defend our liberties, defend our freedom, and we offense, go on offense against them with knowledge. And a way you can do that is to go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There you will be able to download three shows, the Uncooperative Radio Show, this show, The Women of the Revolution, and Patriots Pub. Patriots Pub. That is the only one you have to listen to episode one from because it's linear. The rest you can just download and listen to them any way you want. Um, the first show is a political show but has some history. Our show, Women of the Revolution, is history with politics. And Patriots Pub is only history. It is only history. So go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com, 
And as always, Deb, you've got a couple more minutes, so you can actually extend your taking us out because you've got about 10 minutes. Okay. Well, first of all, as Susan said, you know, our hearts and, oh, our hearts and prayers uh, go out to the families of those who lost their lives in the church in Texas and thank God for good old Texan with a gun. Um, Another thing I want to say about that is these massacres, the so-called by the media, that have been taking place, not one of them has been done by an NRA member. So, you know, the talking heads and the Congress critters are after the NRA, as usual, whenever there's any kind of, even if it's a truck that plows into a group of people, they still blame the NRA and and gun laws. Um, the the, uh, the NRA has not an NRA member has not committed any of these massacres. You know, guess which party they're usually from. It isn't the conservatives. I want to throw that out there because I'm tired of uh, being blamed. And as someone uh, replied back to uh, Joy Reid, that MSNBC idiot uh, talking head, who said, all you NRA members, how can you sleep at night with so much blood on your hands? Or, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm not sure exactly, but it's you know, had definitely how can NRA members sleep at night. And one person said, um, gee, when, when a Muslim commits an act of jihad, do you blame all Muslims? So when a gun owner, an owner of a gun, uh, kills someone, you blame all gun owners. Um, yeah, well, that's how the Democrats think. But anyways, it's, it's uh, oh, Lordy. Um, it's just so upsetting that everything has to be politicized even before the bodies hit the floor. Oh, God, it just breaks my heart. But anyways, we also um, lost another uniform-wearing kid. He's not really a kid. Damned if I can find it now, find his name. I had it. uh, Oh, that's right. I don't have um, Internet right now. Uh, <laughs> anyways, we lost another seal in Afghanistan. You know, Stan And pray for the family that aren't going to have him coming home. Um, hopefully, we can get this under control. Uh, this war thing. And finally, somebody has the balls to stand up and say, enough is enough. Um, we don't need, you know, it's like, who was it that said, we don't need any more crazies, we've got enough here, you know, we don't need to bring in any more crazies, so we have to get rid of the diversity lottery, which to me was just ridiculous to begin with, but, you know, you have to make all your fundraising buddies happy so that you can make sure you get elected next time, have enough war chest. And that's what it really all is. It's, 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 these people are just doing things not because it's constitutional or because it's good for America. 
and Americans. No, no, no. No, no. The only reason anything becomes a law or even, you know, sees the light of day is because they're trying to make somebody on K Street happy. So 75% of your Congress critters um, term is spent fundraising for his next election. Just so you know that that's, that's really what they're doing. So anyways, uh, give our, give our uh, kids in uniform prayers and our vets. Keep on your Congress critter. There's a whole slew of VA uh, or veterans bills coming up. You know, go over to uh, the House and look them up if, if you have a veteran in your in your family or if you are a veteran. Uh, check out, the CFW usually has a good thing um, up on what's going on as well as the American Legion. You can always find uh, you know what's important over there. They they send out email notices to me, so you can you can check in with them to see what's happening in the legislature and see what their Congress critter is doing because it's really important. They don't really care about our kids. They don't care. I mean, they only care. Just, you know, it makes them look good and they can get some money out of it. What a politician does and is what he does or she does. So, uh, I'm just not really, I, I get like this every time I watch this stand. But anyways, pray for our, our sons and daughters in harm's way, because they really are, and we do keep losing them. Um, hopefully, the news reports that I've been getting are factual, and um, ISIS is, is having a real bad time of it right now, but, you know, you know, if you've ever lived in a place where there's cockroaches, you know if you see one, there's a whole bunch more coming. So we need to really, um, we, we need to do, I, I just hate the thought of losing any more kids and, and, and not having the suits back them up here at home. They're putting their life on the line, and we have a whole bunch of, government officials going, oh, what is the religion of peace? Okay, that makes you sleep better at night, but it gets our kids killed. So, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. It was fun revisiting Paul Revere for me and finding out more about his wife, Rachel. Uh, You know, you don't hear too much about the women, and it's it's too bad because these women were something else. So come back next week, next time, same time, we'll be here, God willing, and uh, computer willing. <laughs> I'm not too sure right now, but hopefully I can get this thing fixed. Um, y'all stay safe out there this week. Keep the powder dry. Help somebody. Help a veteran. We'll visit your local VA. Check in, see how they're doing. And uh, give a thanks to to anyone you know who who has raised their right hand, whether it's a firefighter or a policeman or a military person. Uh, Veterans Day is coming up. Um, Do something in honor of a vet you know. So, y'all have a good week out there. Glad to stop by. And uh, hopefully my computer will be 
uh, connecting with the modem next week. <laughs> it won't be such a, uh, uh, well, I could think of a military word, so it's DNF um, next week. So, good night, all. Take care. God bless. And God bless this great country and our kids in uniform. And good night, Moki. We miss you so. We'll see you next week. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.